politicians of all stripes love to talk endlessly about their devotion to the U.S. middle class. But what does that mean? Does a middle class exist? What happens to the middle class under capitalism? And what was Karl Marx's theory of classes? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are happy to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf, that's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here, Brian. Richard Wolf, let's start first with the idea of the middle class. You know, for a long time, certainly when I was growing up, you know, the term working class and certainly the term capitalist class never appeared in any mainstream media. It certainly didn't appear in school. Everything was about the middle class. America was one giant middle class. There were some people who were poor, unfortunately, but soon enough, they too would be part of the great middle class. Only in the last few years has the issue of class even been discussed. Before we start with that, I want to go to the Communist Manifesto, because in this segment, we're trying to go over basic Marxist ideas or concepts. In the very beginning of the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels write, this is 1848, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in the revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. In earlier epochs of history, we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various orders, a manifold gradation of social rank. In ancient Rome, we have patricians, knights, plebeians, slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guildmasters, journeymen, apprentices, serfs. In almost all of these classes, again, there are even more subordinate gradations. Our epic, the epic of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinct feature. It has simplified class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more or more splitting up into two great hostile camps, 
into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and proletariat. So if you're reading Karl Marx, you think, well, there's lots of classes in times of antiquity, in the Middle Ages. Capitalism simplifies it. No talk at all about the middle class as an important class. Anyway, let's just talk about how Americans view the issue of class or the issue of middle class compared to, say, the Marxist approach to this issue. Okay, good. It's one of the most important questions in social theory and social analysis, and it hasn't dimmed in its importance for a long, long time. And before I even begin, I have to make clear to everybody to remind us all that we are emerging in the United States from half a century, even more than that, of the Cold War, when any discussion of Marxian ideas, socialist ideas, which are all about class, were basically made taboo. You couldn't go there. You couldn't think that way. I'll tell you a little story. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation at Harvard University, where I went to school, my, my alma mater, if you like, and I went to school at Harvard and Stanford and Yale. I'm like a poster boy for elite education. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I entitled it The Economics of Colonialism because that's what it was. It was studying the British activities as the colonial overlord of Eastern Africa, in particular, the country we now call Kenya. And my professors at Harvard and Yale were not going to allow me to use words like that. They told me they weren't scientific. So my dissertation had to have the title, Economic Aspects of British Foreign Policy, so that the word colonialism with all of its associations with leftist critiques, was gone. When you live in a place like that, concepts of class are very minimalized, as you've rightly said. But nonetheless, they survived, but they took a, a particular form here in the United States and in other parts of the world too. And it went like this. Classes are either about power or about wealth. Either way, you are in the top class if you have wealth, and you're in the bottom class if you don't. Likewise, you're in the top class if you have a lot of power, and you're in the bottom class if you don't. So we had words like ruling class and ruled class, or the propertied class and the propertyless class. In other words, we define class in terms of how much money or property you did or didn't have, and how much power you did or did not wield. The problem with these concepts of class, and they're perfectly okay, remember that the word class comes from the verb to classify, to subdivide a population of anything into subgroups, to classify them into this class or that class is something we do with oranges and potatoes and trees and young people who are in the class of tall kids and short kids. Classifying is something that's part of human thought. And so the idea was the, the class of the rich versus the class of the poor, the class of the powerful and the class of the powerless. The problem with these ideas is that they are very, very old. They predate Karl Marx by centuries, many, many centuries. If you go back to ancient Greece or Rome, you will find people using the notion of class in terms of how much wealth you have or don't, 
or using the concept of class and how much power you have or don't, way back then, 5,000 years ago. So we don't need Marx for those ideas. They're not particularly Marxist ideas. They are pre-Marxist ideas that have also survived to be post-Marxist ideas. They are indeed what most people in America think about when the word class, the idea of class, comes up. The class of rich Americans, you know, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Elon Musk and so on, versus the poverty-stricken, the people who live in tents under the highway, etc., etc. So the first thing to understand is that those concepts of class are not the only ways class has been defined and used. Marx is important because he introduces a different concept of class. By the way, Marx was very interested in who's rich and who's poor. He thought that was important in understanding a society to see how many were rich and why they were rich and who was poor and what that meant. And ditto, he was very interested in who had power and who didn't. But he felt that for 5,000 years, when the concepts of class as wealth or the concept of class as power had been used by people, they still hadn't produced a society of the sort that he, Marx, was interested in, a society without oppression, a society without deep inequality, etc., etc. People had tried, but they had not succeeded in overcoming fundamental injustices in society. And that's what Marx was concerned about. So he reached the conclusion after much research that he had something to offer. He had an insight into something that was going on that he, by the way, called class, that those who had gone before him, whom he admired and whom he celebrated, had not understood. And that's why their efforts to make a better society, a society that was just and egalitarian. He could explain why they failed, and he could offer something that would make the chances of success greater. And he came up with a different concept of class. And here it goes. In every human society, Marx argues, there are people who spend a good bit of their lives using their brains and muscles to transform nature, to make the goods and services that make modern life possible. These are the people who convert trees into chairs, sheep into woolen clothing, the land into sources of food, and so on. But, and here comes the big one, in every human society, Marx says, People are divided into subgroups. There are those who do the work, who use their brains and muscles to transform nature to make goods and services, and those he ended up calling the working class. And then there are people who do not do the work, but who receive a portion of the work done by those who do work. And he called them the exploiters, the people who get a share of what other people produce. So, for example, in slave society, the slaves do the work. The master takes everything, gives enough back to the slave to keep the slave alive and able to come back the next day and do the work again. But all the rest, 
all of the output over and above what is given back to the workers who do the work is kept. And he called that extra, that output beyond what the workers get back for their sustenance, the surplus. And so he said all societies, slave, feudal, capitalist, are organized so that a majority of the people do the work and produce a surplus that the minority take for themselves. In slavery, the slaves produce a surplus taken by the master. In feudalism, the serfs produce a surplus taken by the lord. And in capitalism, here comes Marx's punchline, we have the same basic division into classes. The working class, the proletariat, who produce more than they get back in the form of wages. And the difference between what they produce and what they get back as wages is the surplus, or if you use modern capitalist language, the profit. And that is taken by the employers, that other class that doesn't do work itself, but receives the surplus, takes the surplus, snatches the surplus, if you like, and uses it to keep this system going. Because for them, this is a very nice system indeed. Other people do the work and they get the surplus. So for Marx, you don't solve the problems of modern society unless you address this basic class issue. And notice, it's not about who's rich and poor. And it's not even about who's powerful and who isn't. It's about who produces a surplus and who gets it. And yes, indeed, the people who get it tend to keep a big fat amount of it for themselves. So they indeed become wealthy and stay that way. And yes, indeed, they hire the policemen and the military to keep down the mass of people who are inclined to want to change a system that has positioned them in the unfortunate role of producing the surplus they don't get to keep. And Marx argued, you want to overcome injustice, you want to overcome inequality. Well, then you've got to address the class structure by which he meant this arrangement of production in the factory, in the office, in the store, where a tiny group of people, the owner, the board of directors, have all the power, have all the authority, and collect into their hands the surplus produced by the majority, the employees who don't get to keep the surplus their labor produces. If you don't change that, Marx argued, you will not be successful in the future any more than you have been in the past to establish a society based on liberty, equality, fraternity, democracy, and all the other goals that progressive human beings have always supported. One big important part of Marx's analysis, Marx and Engels, both in the manifesto and in their other works, has to do with how it came to be that a part of the population, the majority, would agree to go to work every day and back in the 19th century for very long days, 10, 12, 14 hours, and sell their ability to work, their ability to work for wages 
At the end of the process, however, when the products are sold, when the profit is realized, they get none of it. They only get enough in the form of wages to be able to you know, eat and provide shelter and clothing and come back the next day to be exploited once again. The only way that this process could exist would be that that part of the population had little or no property of its own. There was no other way to sustain individuals except by selling their labor to a capitalist. And Marx and Engels talk about how the working classes before the formation of the modern proletariat, they had tools, they had their own property, they had their own workshops, but as a course of through manufacture, through the Industrial Revolution, through laws passed by the ruling classes, the appropriations and expropriations of their property or their inability to compete because the price of their product was higher because it took them longer to make than products made in the factory, that they had to be, in essence, deprived of all personal or private property in order to sell themselves every day for a wage. And Marx in Capital talks about how this was actually a very, very brutal process and the disciplining of people who formerly had some degree of independence, even in the Middle Ages where the serfs were in essence land slaves, they couldn't leave the land, but they were able to keep some part of what they produced. And as you said, the feudal lord took the surplus. But anyway, it was a brutal process where people came to feel it was normal to go to work for 10, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours, including normal for children to work like that. And people don't think about capitalism in terms of its origin, its foundation, its growth as sort of the outgrowth of extreme brutality. And I want you to address that if you could. And also the term or the word proletariat, the word, the proletari, I believe that's how you pronounce it, in the Roman Empire was actually a social class of Roman citizens. They were not enslaved people, and a good part of the working class was enslaved, but they owned little or no property. And the name presumably originated with that Roman census. Marx studied Roman law when he was at the university. He took the reality of those workers who had no property, the lowest class in Roman society besides the enslaved people, and then applied it to this modern process whereby the working class, the tradesmen, loses all of their private property, are forced to go into the factory, and as a consequence are what Marx now describes as wage slaves, not the property of the individual capitalist, but enslaved as a class to another class, because if they don't find work, even if they're free, quote, free labor, if they don't find work, they starve. Anyway, let's talk about some of that. Yes, wherever capitalism has settled, the capitalists, the ones who get the surplus from whoever they can employ, have always sooner or later come up against the problem that they run out of workers, that the people around are not sufficient to come to work and to produce the surplus that the capitalist lives off of. So the capitalists sooner or later are forced to find more workers. By the way, the same thing existed in slavery. The only way slavery in the American South 
could survive for a long time was by getting ever more and more slaves, in that case from Africa, and forcibly bringing them to the United States, etc. Capitalism has the same problem. So what does capitalism do? Well, it doesn't want to raise wages because that might induce people who are not available to capitalists to come over and work for them. Because if you did that, you wouldn't be making much profit because you would have raised the wages you pay your workers. So what's left over for you after you've paid them from what they've produced is less because you have to give them the big wage. So what you try to do and what you're referring to is you try to basically force them to do this. And the way this was done in country after country, and by the way, it's being done that way right as we speak in many parts of the world, is you destroy whatever other economic systems there are in your environment. What this meant for capitalism most of the time was to destroy rural villages, Whether you call them peasants or you call them farmers, it doesn't matter. People living often for many generations on the land, working the land in village groups or in the family group or in a household group, the farmers and peasants live from the produce of the land. What you do is you deprive them of their land. Then they can't live and they cannot survive. And their only option is to go work for the capitalist, which is what the point of it all was. Towards the end of the first volume of Capital, Marx spends an enormous amount of that book explaining what he called the enclosure movement, how this was done in England, where modern capitalism gets going back in the 17th and 18th centuries, how they literally destroyed the mass of the farmers who were the bulk of the British population at that time in order to make them no longer able to live off the land. So they had to move into the towns and cities and offer their labor for sale because there was no other way for them to survive. That has been going on around the world as capitalism spread everywhere. It encountered the same situation. In modern India, right now as we speak, You can see that process, people leaving the countryside because it isn't viable anymore and moving into the cities and working for Indian capitalists. You see the same thing in Brazil as people come off the land because it's no longer viable and have to work for capitalists. Typically, the capitalists use their power to donate to the local politicians, whoever they are, to get them to speed the process, to pass laws that make farming difficult or expensive, and so to basically destroy the rural economy and build up the urban industrial proletariat, if you like, capitalist system. And that's a brutal process. It lasted for centuries. It has been going on, for example, in places like India, literally for several hundred years. And it has happened wherever capitalism has existed. It's beginnings in England, right up to the present. It has killed huge numbers of people because many of the folks could not make the transition. They got sick when they got to the city. They got sick when they lost their farming capabilities. The number of dead and violently destroyed communities and families is more numerous than anybody can count. 
It is a very tragic beginning. Marx himself once wrote that capitalism comes into the world dripping blood from every pore because of the violence with which it was established and the way it had to destroy others. But as Brian said, the basic point was don't give people any other option and then they'll come and work for you. And to see that in play, I can give you an example from the United States today. Conservatives across this country, particularly supported by the business employer class, is trying to take away the 300 extra dollars for unemployed people to help them cope with COVID that were passed over the last year or so. Why? Because they explain, and they don't mind saying it, that this is keeping people from coming to work at horrible low wages at Amazon or at uh, McDonald's or at Walmart because they can survive, not well, but they can with those extra $300. So without shame, the business community wants to take away the $300 because that will take a lot of working people over the edge and they'll have no option left but to come and work for $11 an hour or $9 an hour, which is what the businessmen and women want so that they can recoup some of their losses from COVID by squeezing the working class. If Marx were alive, he'd point to that and say, see, that's what this system does. It's organized to maximize profit. But profit is that surplus that goes to a small minority of the people. To have a system that focuses on profit, as ours does, which makes profit, to quote the system we live in, the bottom line, the top priority, is to make the system work for that very small minority that gets the profit into their hands. The vast majority, the employee class, they don't get the profit, they produce the profit for those other people that Marx wanted us to understand is a different class. So that the solution, and this is really important, for Marx, whatever you do about equalizing wealth, about democratizing power, if you don't change the relationships of production, the relationship of employee to employer, your project of a decent society will fail. That was the mistake of those who went before. Marx's contribution is, in order to get equality, liberty, fraternity, and democracy, you have to radically democratize the workplace. No more producers of surplus on the one hand and appropriators of it on the other. The people who make the surplus, here we go now, have to be the exact same people who get the surplus they have produced and who together, democratically, one worker, one vote, decide what to do with the surplus they have produced. When you do that, you will have created the foundation and the basis for the good society and that which socialists have always said is their objective. And of course, Richard, if employment is guaranteed, if the society says your right to a job or to a basic income that parallels or is the same as a decent paying job, if that's a guarantee, 
Well, what worker would go, say, to Amazon to work where you work eight or nine or 10 hours a day and you pick 1,200 items off of a shelf as you run around a warehouse and you are suffering so many injuries because every second of your day is planned, timed, coordinated, and computerized and tracked with algorithms. Like what worker would go work there if you had a guarantee of employment somewhere else? Meaning the material basis for changing the way work is organized will be radically transformed when workers actually have options and have choices and when they have a guarantee such that they are no longer completely dependent on someone like Jeff Bezos or whatever capitalist you want to name employs them. That's such a big difference and will be, I believe, the material basis for the reorganization of work. Absolutely. It's one of those things where it's as if you said, look, we're not going to let anybody's income go below a certain amount which in a way was a a little bit what they tried to do with those extra $300 for the unemployed over the last few months. Look, part of that is correct. You're giving people a bit of an option. It's basic decency in a society where the wealth of the wealthy is grotesque. It is the least you could do. But when capitalism is under the gun, when they are not making the profits that they want, all the niceties, all the decencies that they even espouse in church on the weekend disappear. And they do the same brutal disinterest in the suffering of most of the people in the community that they attack in other countries, but are blind to when they do it themselves. And so, yes, there would be many steps have been advanced by workers to give themselves more options so that they do not have to take the abuse that the capitalists will dish out to them if given half a chance. Look, it used to be, let me give you a parallel. There used to be teachers, and I've been a teacher all my life, who wanted to be able to deliver corporal punishment to kids in school, to students, to pupils. And they insisted that this was the only way to keep discipline. The only way to teach was when someone acted up to beat them. And that was the reality in schools for a long time until a movement developed that said there has to be a different way of working out your relationship in the classroom. You cannot beat children. Just like we had to say to capitalists, you cannot employ six-year-old people to work in your factories. We don't care what your argument is about how you need it and the system will fall apart. We've heard all of that before. And guess what? We got rid of corporal punishment in the schools and we got rid of child labor here in the United States. And the capitalists who told us it could never work were wrong. It works just fine. The schools still have problems and so do the workplaces. But we were able to get rid of something that capitalists found convenient, but that we don't need at all. And when the capitalists didn't have it, they found alternative ways to solve their problems. 
Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>